First Peter 4, verses 1 to 11. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks, as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves, as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Can't see this. Oh, we're on. We're on the set. We're on. Just I've been preached from this mic in ages because of all of our outdoor services. So feels a little bit weird. But anyways, uh, in the history of Christianity, since since the church began, uh, since Christ ascended back to heaven, there have been all sorts of ways that people have identified themselves as Christians, and I mean like in a in a public, obvious sort of way. In some cases, Christians adopted specific haircuts, you know, like the ton or the ton- tonsure, uh, or or they wore particular kinds of robes. Uh, other Christians uh, have worn some sort of jewelry that represented their faith. You know, think of like a cross necklace. Or in later times, you know, the, the Jesus fish on their car. They tattooed a verse on their arm, something like that. Now, none of these public identifications are wrong. Like, like whatever, they're fine. They're not in the Bible. You don't have to do them, but they're kind of understandable. But the scriptures do say there's actually one way that Christians should be identifiable to the world outside of the church. And if you look at John 13, 35, Jesus tells his disciples there, by this all people will know you are my disciples if you love one another. If you love one another. So not by a cross necklace, not by a Hebrew tattoo on your bicep, but across all time and space in every kind of place amongst every different kind of tribe or town of people, you will be able to find Christians, Jesus says, because of how they love one another. Because think about it, a non-Christian, a a person who is not a Christian, they cannot use any standard of doctrine to determine if if some person is a Christian. Any kind of confession or creed, uh, they generally don't care about such things. But what they can do is look at how Christians treat each other. Now, if the command is for Christians to love each other, then of course that command is sometimes broken. To fail in love, it doesn't mean you're not a believer. It doesn't mean you've lost your faith. It just casts a shadow on such things, but maybe more importantly, it, uh, it, lets the, or it leaves the unbelieving world with no way to understand if you are a Christian or not, or who is a Christian and who isn't. In John 17, a couple chapters after the verse I just read, 
Jesus says that the oneness and love of Christians uh, will actually be a kind of argument. It'll be a proof uh, that Jesus is real and was indeed sent by the Father. And so in, in two verses, we have an explanation that first, that the love Christians have for each other is both proof they are Christians and the love Christians have for each other is an argument that Jesus is who he said he was. But that leaves us in a tight spot in 2021 because COVID has produced an environment amongst Christians that is often characterized not by love, but by suspicion and distrust, meanness, aggressiveness, self-centeredness, and probably a host of other things that has left us unwilling to love each other. I think sometimes we functionally said our beliefs, our convictions, our thoughts about COVID, they have eclipsed our willingness to obey these commands. I think some of us have decided there are some Christians I can no longer love. And if that's true, if my suspicion is true, then that's actually a very serious threat to our life together. It's a very serious deterrent to a world that cannot figure out who the Christians are. And it basically, it, it destroys this argument that Jesus is who he said he was. So this is very serious, and we need to talk about it. And I want to use this letter uh, Elena read for us. The Apostle Peter wrote to scattered, worried, divided, threatened Asian Christians. Now, Southwest Asian, Asia Minor, sometimes called. But in this letter... He's trying to tell them, uh, how, how should you handle a situation where the internal love of the church, the love for each other inside the church, how, what goes on when that's threatened or when that's lost? So I want to take our text today in three parts. We'll talk about the old way of life first, then the new way of life second, and then third, uh, it's sort of like we're going to tie up the whole sermon series, but just talk about the end of all things and the glory of God. First Peter it's a letter written to people who are on the edge. If you read through it, you're like, oh man, they're enduring fiery trials. We don't even know what that means, but it sounds intense. He talks about their relationship to the emperor, to government authorities who are suspicious um, and even attacking them. He talks about false teaching that has infiltrated the church. He's talked about husbands and, and wives, all these relationships, parents and kids, and all this stuff. And then he arrives in verse 4, and he starts with this word, since. And whenever you see a connecting word in the Bible, that's a clue. The, the author is making some kind of argument here. And so Peter says, he begins with the example of Christ. And he basically says to them, hey guys, remember that Christ suffered in the flesh. And of course, if you've been around Christianity for a while, you know, suffered is a euphemism. It's a polite word for the actual description of the torture, ridicule, public shaming, and crucifixion that Christ endured. But he says to the Christians, all these scattered Christians, um, the mind of Christ, the way that Christ thought as he suffered, that's available to you. And in fact, you should take it up. You should, you should pull it out of its scabbard and arm yourself with it. Take it up like a spear. But it all hinges, all the things he's about to say, on Christ suffering in the flesh. Because he did something, there are effects, there are now changes to our lives. To what end? What kind of changes? Well, according to verse 2, he basically says, so you can live differently, so that you won't spend your time following the winds, the breezes of human passions, but instead you'll follow the will of God. Now, we'll talk about, in the second part today, we'll talk about what the will of God is. What does he want from you if you are a Christian? But first, let's talk about this old way of life. What exactly is Peter telling them to leave behind? Well, he has a list there in verse 3. Sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. Sensuality, passions, and orgies, that refers to sexual sin, sex outside of marriage, 
Drunkenness and drinking parties refers to, of course, over-drinking, being addicted to alcohol. Lawless idolatry, that's kind of a catch-all category. Anything that displaces Jesus from his rightful place as king of, king of our lives, king of the world. And Peter says, these are exactly the things the Gentiles want to do. And if you don't know Christ or before you knew Christ or whatever, it's probably what you feel like doing as well. Now, it doesn't mean that every Christian is doing this, you know, every moment, that they're getting drunk and sleeping around all the time. But in general, Peter is saying, one simply follows whatever desires you have. So we might say the Spice Girls had it right. You know, when they say, tell me what you want, what you really, really want, you say, that's the code that the world is living by, that whatever you want, you just go after it, that your body and your flesh, whatever, whatever it desires, you just go do that. And it's not always sensual things. Sometimes it is. But think of our COVID era. What feels good to us right now? You're like, well, actually, sex free sexuality kind of feels dangerous. <laughs> Uh, drinking parties, uh, it's kind of dangerous. We don't, we don't really do that very much. But what do we want in our flesh right now during this era? I think some of us want to feel safe. I think some of us want to feel free. And I think a lot of us want to feel like we're on the right side, we're doing the right sort of things. And to get to those things, sometimes in our desire to make ourselves safe, we make others unsafe. Or in the desire to exercise our own freedom, uh, we do it at the expense of other people's freedom. Or we make ourselves feel more right by demonizing and tearing down the other side. Why? Because it feels good. It's what we want to do. It's what, what the body wants. And it's not just like Canadians, uh, non-Christian Canadians doing this. It's Christians as well. And sometimes even more so. Because we think, not this is our side right, but it's also more spiritual. It's also more mature of a viewpoint. So you're not getting swept up in sexual passion with a new person each week. Great. Are you following other human passions? I'm glad if you aren't getting drunk on the regular, but are you addicted to shredding people who disagree with you on social media? Slightly obsessed with dunking on the other side? See, what Peter pictures in the renewed people of God, if you look at verse 4, is that an unbelieving world stares at them sort of in surprise because they do not go along with this flood of debauchery, this is the word Peter used, that everyone else is surfing. So Peter says the church, or the, the world is supposed to look at the church and see, shockingly, people who are stingy with their bodies and sexuality, at least outside of marriage. But instead, they look at the church and see people who refuse to call names. And imagine the world looked at the church and saw people who refused to speak of the other side of the debate as misguided, stupid, power-hungry, whatever it is. Imagine a world where the Christians refused to join in the flood of divisive, hateful, slanderous speech that characterizes a lot of our discourse. The river of human passion is flowing along, and Peter says, don't go in, the water is not fine. And not just does the world stare in surprise, but Peter says the Christians are also maligned. The mob turns on them. At least partially, I'm sure, because it shines a light on their own behavior. Perhaps during COVID, you've had a conversation where someone kept trying to get you to join their side. I was at the park a couple weeks ago, and a very casual acquaintance, just someone I'd met once or twice, kept trying to, me, to get me to agree to some fairly controversial COVID opinions. I won't tell you which, which end she was on, but she ended every sentence with, right? And you know? And when I wouldn't, you know, agree or I'd equivocate or like, ah, you know, well, you know, the guns kind of get turned on you. Now, she didn't call me any names at the park or whatever, but she was shocked that I wouldn't take her side. 
Now, I don't think she was sinning. That's not what this is about. I'm just saying there's a pressure sometimes to join in. There's a flood that's going along, and when you don't sort of surf it, it seems weird. And when you refuse to participate in sinful behavior, people are surprised and sometimes will malign you. Now, in the case of all the culture at large, all these non-Christians, Peter tells the Christians, don't worry about it. Every single person everywhere is going to have to give an account of their behavior to God. He's going to judge the living. He's going to judge the dead. And in verse 6, we don't really have time to talk about verse 6. Frankly, it's one of the more confusing things in the New Testament. And, uh, but Peter's emphasis here is just that, look, this is one reason we preach the gospel everywhere to everyone. It's because all people are going to have to give an account of their behavior to God. And by the way, isn't it interesting that all of our social media things are called accounts? That you have an Instagram account or a Twitter account or whatever, a TikTok account. Peter's saying, you will have to give account for all your accounts. Just keep that in mind. So I would invite you to consider this morning, has the old way of life cropped up in your interactions with other people in the church, other Christians? Are there, are there human passions that are sweeping you away with them? I would remind you, Christ suffered in the flesh to make you new. And a pandemic presents new challenges, for sure it does, but it does not give us an excuse for indulging in the old self. That's part one, that's the old way of life. Part two, the new way of life. Peter sets a table for us, verse seven, by telling us, the end of all things is at hand. Now when you hear that phrase, you're like, is someone have a sandwich board, you know, a bedraggled hair, and now you're ringing a bell, you know, announcing the end is near. What, what does he mean by this? And maybe if you're a skeptical person, you think, you know, well, well, stuff like this is why we can't really trust the Bible. Peter thinks the world's about to end, but we're here thousands of years later. Clearly he was wrong, therefore we can't trust him. We can't trust anything he says. Well, that's a good point, and I'm thankful for you for raising it. Um, he, here's, here's what's going on. The Bible talks about history differently than you and I talk about history. When the Bible speaks about the times, the beginning of time, the end of time, it, it has the whole of human history in view all at once. And so Peter understands he is standing after, the, after the, the life, death, and resurrection of Christ has occurred. So he realizes then that he and his readers stand in the last days, the end of days, not because they're few, but because the pinnacle, the high point of human history, Jesus Christ, has happened. And so if you imagine it's sort of like a slope, everything kind of sloped up to Christ, he happened, and then everything kind of slopes down after him. So if Christ has come, it's all the end. Now it may not be the end of the end, but the end is at hand. This is what he says. It started. So I, I personally think he's correct in saying the end of all things is at hand. That's how the Bible speaks about history. Now, you might expect, if it were the end of days, that Peter would tell his readers, start living extraordinary lives. You only got a short time left. Do something really big and bold. Uh, it's like the end of your cross-country race, and I know you've been jogging along, but now like sprint. You got like 100 meters left. But that's not what he says at all. He basically tells the Christians, uh, just go on doing normal Christian things. At the end of all things, Peter says, uh, just go live like Christians. And he actually tells them, uh, don't lose your minds. <laughs> keep, a, keep a clear head. You know, over and over in church history, we have documented proof that Christians sometimes lose their, lose their heads. And they get panicky. And they do very silly and sometimes weird things when they think the world is ending. 
One of the first big times that ever happened was when Rome fell, okay, like 400, whatever, 440. The city that was the center of, of the Christian church, and people thought, man, if that falls, the end must be near. But it wasn't. <laughs> and Augustine and others came along and wrote books and be like, there's a difference between the kingdom of Rome and the kingdom of God. And then in the Middle Ages, it happened again, the bubonic plague, the various plagues of the Middle Ages. There's writings that have endured that suggest, like, maybe this is it, maybe this is the end, but it wasn't. Then in the 20th century, <laughs> kind of exploded. We had Nazism and communism and capitalism and the atomic age, and, and certain Christians were saying, this for sure, this is the end. And it wasn't. And I've noticed some people, some Christians are treating COVID or the government response as the end of the world, as this sort of really, really big deal. And it's a deal. It's something to be aware of, but also, according to what Peter tells us, even if it is the end, just nothing changes for the Christian. Just go live your life. Go live your Christian life no matter who the government is. Go live your Christian life no matter how many days are left, because frankly, you don't know. And if you think you know, you're probably wrong. Martin Luther, the famous reformer, he was once asked, hey, I don't know if they said, hey, Martin, but they said, what would you do if the world was going to end tomorrow? And he said, I'd plant a tree and pay my taxes. It's like, I'm just going to go do all the normal stuff. Life doesn't change. So look, friends, COVID has been incredibly disruptive. The, the, the government, the public health response, it's generated a lot of discussion, a lot of division. Sure, even if the end of all things is at hand, we still have normal Christian work to do. Sometimes the panic that the end is near leads us to unchristian or uncharitable or even just unsustainable actions towards others. Now, what does Peter say? What Christian work is there for us if the world ends tomorrow or if it's another 2,000 years? He has four things. At the end of the world, what should you be busy with? And by the way, I think this will be helpful for seeing the way we can live with other Christians uh, as, for as long as COVID lasts and beyond. But he basically talks about your mind, your heart, your stuff, and your hands. And I want to take a look at each here. In contrast to the old way of life, Peter tells them they should be concerned about their minds. He says you should be self-controlled and sober-minded. Now, self-control, what's that? It's the ability to say no to things that are harmful to the self, or at least to regulate things that would be hurtful if consumed in excess. So Christian self-control, it's a God-given ability to say, no, to, to say no to some things for the sake of saying yes to God or saying yes to loving your neighbor, yes to something good. It's literally just to have the self under control, to not be driven along by passions and desires. Sober-mindedness, of course, refers to alcohol, drugs, things that alter the mind state. But, but more than that, he's, he's hoping for a kind of clear-minded living, that your mind is engaged with how you go through life. You're thinking carefully about your decisions. You're not mindless. At the end of all things, be self-controlled and sober-minded. Think about the contrast Peter's drawing. The old way of life involved drunkenness, drinking parties, out-of-control living. And Peter says, no more. No, no, now you're self-controlled. Now you're alert. Now you're clear-minded. Christ is, is making you into this new thing. Your mind is different. Now, what does that mean for the life of the church? It means we ought not be out of control with respect to brothers and sisters, to other Christians in the church. Peter expects you have the self-control to not reply out of anger. 
Do you have a clear mind to think carefully about issues before talking to others? Do you have the self-control to turn off social media or turn off the news when it becomes detrimental to your relationships or to your mental and emotional state? And Peter even says, it's kind of scary, he says, your ability to be self-controlled and sober-minded will affect your prayers. Now, he doesn't spell it exactly how that works. Does it mean that you know, you'll pray less because you're not sober or maybe because you're actively sinning? You know, he doesn't really say. They're affected. <laughs> They're affected if you're not. The life of the mind is important inside the church. And so I would encourage you to reflect on how you've thought about how you think about currently other people, other Christians. Have you been ascribing motives? Have you been making assumptions? Are you cherishing thoughts of anger or bitterness? Have you been condemning people in your heart? I said last week, in a pandemic, everyone can be right and everyone can be wrong. And it's kind of hard to tell from the outside which is which. Is a person reckless or trying to be loving? It's hard to tell from the outside. Is a person fearful or appropriately cautious? It's hard to tell. Guard the life of your mind. Second, he says, at the end of the world, be busy with your heart. Look at verse 8. He says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Keep loving, Peter says. Constant love. Constant love. And then earnestly, that's loving with energy, enthusiasm, sincere effort. Think about the kind of contrast Peter is drawing from the upper half of this section. In the old life, the only kind of love, if you can even call it that, expressed was, was romantic, sexual, erotic love. It was all sensuality and passion. But now, uh, Peter says, there, there is an earnest familial love. He basically tells them, stop sharing your beds and start sharing your lives. What does it mean to love other people in the church? Earnestly, especially right now. Let me cherry-pick a few qualities from 1 Corinthians 13, which is a famous chapter about love, where the Apostle Paul there says, to love is not to insist on your own way. In other words, to love another person means uh, serving them is more important than being right, or more important than having it your way, or more important than having your preferences catered to. Paul says, love keeps no record of wrongs. If you love another person, you're willing to forgive them and move on. In the same way that God does not hold your sins against you, neither do you hold, should you hold sins against others. Paul says love hopes for all things. Love never gives up. Because you basically believe, since God is at work, tomorrow can be better than today. Keep on earnestly loving each other, Peter says. I wonder if in the COVID era, you've settled for something less than love with people here at church or other people in other parts of your life. Maybe you've just ignored them. Maybe you tried to be cordial. I don't know. But the Christian command at the end of the world is to love each other. And, when I'm, and I might include in brackets, especially those with whom you disagree. If you're like me, I bet you've gone through a wide variety of emotions during the pandemic as it relates to other people. Maybe like me, you've actually gone through stages of grief with people in your life. And maybe at times you've been in disbelief at other people, then you've been angry at them, then you've been sad about them, and then maybe you just ended up at resignation. That gets really hard. When I stand here and tell you you need to love other people, especially those who are difficult, I understand that's really hard. And this season has presented new challenges. But listen, to love does not mean you have to be good friends with them. 
It doesn't mean you need to watch movies together on Friday nights or go camping together in the summer, though you might. But Peter is saying you have to aim for something more than tense peace. Tim Keller tells the story of a man who attended his first church. Uh, He was a pastor in small town Virginia. And Tim Keller and this man didn't get along. Different personalities, different, uh, different ways of seeing the world, different interests, all that stuff. And Keller talks about going through these emotions, frustration and anger and sadness and all that. But he felt convicted about needing to love this man, you know, pastor guilt and all that stuff. And so he's like, so I tried. I tried to be kind and patient and to pray for him and, and, and all those kinds of things, think the best of him. And after a few, a few years went by of him making effort in love, and, uh, and he t- so one day, Tim and his wife, Kathy, were trying to figure out uh, what they should do. They had a day off, like a Saturday or something. And they were discussing different ideas, you know, sitting on the breakfast table. Oh, we could do this. We could do that. And Tim suggested that they call this man and his wife and see if they wanted to hang out. And Kathy was reacted with surprise. He's like, I thought you always found him difficult. I thought, thought you didn't like him. And Tim, uh, real, he, said, he was speaking about it. He said, realize that years of effort and love... Empowered by God had not just actually transformed uh, or had actually transformed him. So it wasn't just that he could love him, but he actually felt differently about him. And Kelly says, we kind of accidentally became friends. Now, look, I'm not promising that the people you clash with, the people you disagree with will become your friends. Like life isn't a Hallmark movie. It doesn't always end like happy. But I am telling you, if we are going to survive this pandemic, like not physically, spiritually, We have to love each other earnestly, and especially those who frustrate us, especially those who make us mad and make us sad. Now third, we'll do the the third and fourth things here a little bit quicker, but the third thing to deal with at the end of the world, your stuff. Peter says, if you look in verse 9, show hospitality to each other without grumbling. Now this is kind of interesting because the word hospitality was actually, or it was normally shown to strangers and to travelers. It literally means the love of the stranger. But Peter says, oh no, this is also how you treat other Christians as well. The Christians should be known for the sharing of resources, the openness of their homes, generosity with whatever they have. And again, note some of the contrast. Whereas in the old life, remember he said, uh, houses were being used for sex parties and drinking parties. Now houses, he said, should be used for service, for sharing, for feeding each other. And that Christ's suffering changes how you use your stuff. I was talking to someone recently who told me that one way COVID had affected them was that they had gotten out of the habit of having people over, which is totally understandable. For some time, having, not having people over was a way to care for them or to protect them. But in the medium to long term, that does not make for a healthy spiritual life. That life is enriched when we are, and we are spiritually nourished when we're hospitable to other people. Now, look, you've got to consider your stage of life, health issues, kids. Like you've got to consider a lot of different things to make a determination of how you can be hospitable. There are lots of different ways to share resources. But Peter says this remains an essential part of how we love each other. And I do hope our soon-to-start small groups will help us practice these habits. That if you've gotten out of the routine, if that describes you, that this will maybe be a way to find your way back into a routine. Now, fourth thing to do at the end of the world, or fourth thing to be concerned about, is your hands. And verse 10 to 11 has a, has a description of different kinds of gifts, just a couple. Now, we did a long thing on gifts in our First Corinthians series. You can find that sermon on our website. But, but Peter's point is right there in the first part of verse 10, where he basically says, whatever gift you've received, use it to serve each other. 
God's grace is varied. It comes in all sorts of forms and fashions. And so lots of us are going to have all kinds of gifts. Figure out what you have and bring it and use it. When we were trying to figure out our small groups and tiny groups this past week, I pulled in a few people who are really good at arranging people. <laughs> they're, 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 they have keen insight into how people work together and how, how personalities might fit. And, and, and these two or three people that I asked to help out made some really good suggestions. That's a gift to the church. So maybe your small group is better fitting than it might have been otherwise. Or I've also watched some of you teach Sunday school or kids' classes. That's a gift you give to the church. I've watched some of you wander around after services and find the new people to welcome them. And then before you leave, like phone numbers are being exchanged and rides are being offered. And all of us introverts are like, wow, that's really amazing. Like, how did, how did they just do that? And others of you play, play music or clean up or, or give generously financially. Whatever gift you have, Peter says, use it. But we need to tie things up here. Let's move to part three, the glory of God. It's the end of this passage. It's the end of our, our series about COVID and its consequences. And I want to kind of just step back and consider a few things. Peter summarizes this passage in the back half of verse 11 by saying that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ and to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. So he's telling them, these Christians, and he's telling us, look at your life, look at the whole scope of history through this lens of trying to glorify God and Jesus, trying to make much of them, trying to acknowledge that God is king. We want to be able to look back at the COVID era in a year or five years or 10 years and to hope that God was glorified in how we acted and reacted, how we spoke, how we thought, and what our church became. You know, in five years, you might be exactly right and proved right in how you thought about masks and vaccines and public health guidance. But listen to me, please listen to me very carefully. Being right about COVID is of no use if you break all of the commands of this passage along the way. It's of no use. Great, you were right about vaccines, but we're an angry jerk for a while. That's a failure. Great, you were right about lockdowns, but you held grudges and cherished bitterness in your heart. That's a failure. Great, you were safe and no one in your family died, but you failed to love and, and to serve and to be hospitable. Look, I don't want you to have regrets. I don't want to have regrets. Maybe this is what I'm trying to tell you in this whole series is hold all your COVID opinions really loosely and hold on to the scriptures very tightly. And maybe you need to say to yourself, like every day, I may be wrong. (laughs) I may be wrong about vaccine passports, but I can move forward in earnest love. And I may be wrong about masks, but I'm going to do my best to share my stuff with others no matter what. If you are a Christian, the goal of your life, it's not to be right. It's to bring glory to God. You can be wrong and still do that. It's, it's just you are to be a signpost that God is great and you just got kind of dragged along for the ride. Do you see what Peter is saying? He says, in order that, or he does not say, in order that you may show everyone how smart you were all the way along. It's not what he says. He says, in order that in everything, God may be glorified. Look, in all likelihood... We're going to look back and see we were right about this and right about that and we were wrong about this and wrong about that. But even if you're wrong, you can still love. And even if you're right, you can still get caught up in these passions and and desires of your old nature. 
So my reminder to you, as we, even as we return to the top of this passage, is to remember Christ suffered in the flesh for you, to free you from sin. So you feel guilty today? Christ died for you. Christ suffered in the flesh for you. You feel ashamed? Christ died for you. He suffered for you. You feel scared? Christ died for you. He is your life. He's our life. And he's making us new. The starting point, but also the way we continue in this new way of life is through Christ and his suffering. Because he died once and for all to bring us to God, we are free from sin. We are free from death to go and live for him. May Christ have mercy on you. May Christ have mercy on me. And may Christ have mercy on all of us. Let's pray together. God, we, we need your help. We need you to come through. We need you to make us into a new kind of people who earnestly love each other and are hospitable and who pray for each other and who serve the world around us. God, free us from the desire to be right and to show ourselves right and help us to cling tightly to you. And no matter how many difficult days are ahead, would you continue to renew us, restore us. In Christ's name, amen.